this time, any kids who are headed to Covenant Kids Worship may be dismissed. That's uh, time for our kids who are four years through first or second grade. Uh, come to our text that we're coming to this morning, uh, and it's a way for them to engage with this text from a more age-appropriate level. As always, kids are welcome to be with us here uh, as we come to God's Word together. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 22. And before we get to our text, um, on Tuesday, something important in the lives of many happened. Uh, Trick-or-treating is happening in, around our neighborhoods where lots of candy will be given out and consumed. Uh, it's also an important day in the life of the church. It's a day that we remember the Reformation, the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door. And if you have a student in high school, Sunday school, you can t ask them why Martin Luther chose October 31st as the day to nail those theses to the Wittenberg church door. It wasn't just by accident, by the way. He didn't just, it didn't, he didn't just be like, oh, I'm finally done writing my 95 theses. I think I'll nail it to the door. Nope, October 31st, All Hallows' Eve was chosen very, very carefully. In the great hymn that Luther penned, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he begins with the image of God being our mighty fortress, never failing, providing our protection, particularly against what he calls our ancient foe, Satan. He then reminds us how futile it is to rely on our own strength, instead of the strength of Jesus. And then in verses 3 and 4, they're especially applicable to our text today. The hymn goes, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word should, shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. The great missionary Elizabeth Elliot, commenting on suffering, used Corrie Ten Boom, the Dutch woman who helped hide Jews during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands, as an example. Quote, Corrie Ten Boom was a woman of strong faith and a radiant face. Why? Not because she had not suffered, but because she had and had responded to that suffering in a concentration camp during World War II with trust. Learning the depth of human helplessness and weakness, she turned to her strong tower, and he was faithful to his promises. She goes on to answer the question how anyone could live with trust in the face of that kind of suffering. Elizabeth Elliot says, quote, "'The body they may kill.'" but so what? In other words, fear God and become fearless. 
Nothing in heaven or earth or hell can scare you then. This morning in our text, Peter is giving us a similar reminder, living what he has called the honorable or what we said could literally be translated the beautiful life often brings peace. But if it doesn't, if living this beautiful life in Christ doesn't bring peace, there's hope. And our hope is in our mighty fortress, our strong tower, the one who is faithful to his promises Jesus. So let's read 1 Peter 3, 8 through 22. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your word made flesh in Jesus. Lord, we pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word this day. Lord, may our lives be transformed by it and conformed to it. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we continue in our series in 1 Peter titled Exiles, and last week in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we were confronted with the question, do we believe that the beautiful life is sacrificial, to live life as sacrificial, as spiritual sacrifices? And we saw in our text that because Jesus is our priest who gave his life as a sacrifice for us, we can live beautiful lives of priestly service. And Peter speaks directly to wives and husbands, 
but also uses that, those relationships as an example for Christians in general and how to live this beautiful life. And one thing that I'm not sure that I clearly pointed out last week is that we should notice in how Peter addresses the non-believing husbands that they are not to use a position, their position to force submission from their wives. As I said, in that culture, a wife was to adopt the husband's religious practices, but Peter doesn't expect that of Christian wives to submit to their husband's pagan practices. And likewise, he says to Christian husbands to live with understanding, showing honor to their unbelieving wife, not allowing Christian husbands to force their faith and even a new lifestyle upon their wives. And by extension, this is how any Christian, how any Christian husband should live, not just with those unbelieving wives. But it goes even beyond this relationship between husband and wife. As I said, all Christians are to learn from this, these relationships that, Paul, that Peter uses in our text. All Christians aren't to force their faith or lifestyle upon others. In whatever position we find ourselves in, especially when in a position of authority, we are to win others to the faith with understanding and showing honor, not through force, not through demanding that they do so. Peter takes that theme that he's been developing and continues from verse 8. And he said, in verse 8, he says, finally, all of you, so he's taken the household servant, the wives and husbands, and now finally all of you. Now there's a bit of disagreement uh, on whether or not Peter is now just addressing the Christian community, mainly because he uses the term brotherly love. But he also says, don't return evil for evil. And so there's this question of, does he change the, the context of, his, of who he's addressing? Is he still addressing uh, Christians and how they live among unbelievers? Is he addressing Christians within the Christian community living with one, another's, with one another? But Peter has been clearly pointing out on how we as Christians should live among unbelievers. And so we have to at least see that he continues that train of thought, finally, all of you. That doesn't mean that he's not calling us to live this way within the church, within the body of Christ as well. But he's reminding us, all of you, living among unbelievers, that when we live in light of these things, this is the beautiful life that God in Christ, through the Apostle Peter, is calling us to. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to you this you are called, that you may attain a blessing. As we come to our text this morning, Peter will address the fact that this beautiful life is something that we've been called to live. And when we are called to live this life, he says it will often bring peace, but sometimes it won't. In fact, sometimes we'll experience suffering even as we live in the way that we are being called to live. So we must ask the question, do we believe suffering is not the opposite of blessing? 
Do we believe that suffering is not the opposite of blessing? Peter's explicit answer is no. Suffering is not the opposite of blessing. In fact, we can even experience blessing in our suffering. And this is so important for us to remember, not only because it might see counter to what we desire, right? We, no one wants to suffer. But it's also counter to what some Christians teach. Some Christians actually teach that suffering is a sign of God's anger or that you must be doing something wrong to experience suffering, that God is punishing you because you are experiencing suffering. But Peter says no. Instead, Peter wants us to see, and this is our main point from our text, because we are united with Christ in his suffering, we can live the beautiful life. Because we are united with Christ in his suffering, we can live the beautiful life, the beautiful life of blessing. There is blessing in the beautiful life. The beautiful life of suffering and the beautiful life in Christ. First, the beautiful life of blessing in verses 8 through 12. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because this is, I think, something that just <laughs> makes sense. But Peter states in verses 8 through 13 that this is the norm, right? He, he quotes from Psalm 34 that we read as our as our call to worship this morning, he, he quotes from Psalm 34 explaining that the way that life works, the way that God has ordained life to work, that those who live the beautiful life the, and do good, that typically their lives bring about good. Right? A good life allows peace. Whatever we may say about life in an alien culture under hostile authorities, the greater part of the Christian life is about the character and disciplines that shape our daily actions and our, our responsibilities. Right, so Peter describes the virtues that bless everyone, harmony or unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling. But for the contrary, you are called to bless. It's almost as if Peter is, is helping us to remember the promise that God made to Abraham. Right? You are called to be a blessing, God told Abraham. To be a blessing to the nations. And Peter is almost bringing that same imagery. He might even be bringing that same imagery to us in our text to remind us that we are called to be a blessing. That is our primary calling as followers of Christ, to be a blessing to those that we find ourselves in exile around. That we are to build houses build buildings, plant gardens, seek the good of the place where God has placed us as the prophet Jeremiah reminded his people in exile. The beautiful life of blessing, Peter says, is a reality that when you live as God has called you to live, you will be a blessing. And like Jeremiah said, as you bless you then in return receive that blessing as well. But Peter goes on 
and says that the beautiful life is also experienced in suffering. Right? Verses 13 through 17. Right? He, he begins by reminding us that the beautiful life does, in fact, bring blessing, for you are called to be a blessing. But in verse 14, he says, or in verse uh, 13, he says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Right? If you do, if you live the beautiful life, who's going to harm you for that? That's how the world should normally work. But it doesn't always, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Right? Even if you are living the beautiful life in the way that God has called you, walking in the Spirit, you may still experience suffering. Because not everyone at every place at every time will experience this beautiful life as something that is good. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the, a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Always be prepared to make a defense for the reason of hope in you. When... Are you to make a defense? Peter says, when someone asks you. And why would they ask you? They ask you because they see you suffering for righteousness' sake. Right? That you, they see that you are, even though you are living this beautiful life, you are suffering and you're not fearing them, nor are you troubled. And this is when we are to give our defense, Peter says. People will see, right? There'll be some people who will cause suffering, but there'll be other people that will see the way that you live this beautiful life in the face of suffering, and they will ask, how? How do you do that? How is that possible? How can you defend your suffering is basically what Peter is saying. And Peter says, give a defense for why you are not in complete and utter despair. And Peter says, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. Now, this verse is often taken out of context. Right? I know Christians who go around looking for a defense to make. Right? They go around looking for people that they can confront, that they can press, that they sometimes even mock people's beliefs. I'm not talking about people who with great care and respect share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people. I know many people who just so 
easily and selflessly share the gospel in any types of circumstance, in any place, at any time, and they do it with great respect and care. I'm talking about those who have taken this verse out of context as marching orders, as marching orders to defend the faith. But that is not what Peter is saying here, brothers and sisters. He is saying that when you suffer unjustly and people see you are suffering and they see that the way that you suffer is different than how others suffer. And when people ask how you can have hope in the face of it, that's when we give a defense or an apologia in the Greek where we get our word apologetics from. And it carries this idea, this implied meaning of someone making a, a good his or her cause. How can you defend the suffering that you are experiencing? And Peter is, he goes on to say, we must understand that suffering is not the opposite of blessing. Right? Jesus had declared that those be, who are blessed, who, who suffer for righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount, he promised them a reward in heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. And that word of Jesus is more than a promise. It pronounces blessing. Those who receive a heavenly reward are already blessed by the Lord. And Peter is emphasizing this teaching of Jesus. Those who suffer receive the benediction or blessing of Christ as a present possession, as something they can hold on to until their time of suffering comes to an end until they realize and know the blessing that they have received. Peter reminds us it is far better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Peter is pointing out that if living the beautiful life brings about suffering, that is good because that is God's will. And while suffering is hard and difficult, it's better to experience suffering than to compromise and do what is evil to avoid suffering. Right? He's not using uh, the term evil here in doing like, things that we might think as evil deeds, though those could be included, but more the sense of anything that is against God's will is evil. And it is better to experience suffering for the sake of righteousness than to compromise and do what is evil to avoid suffering. And so we see here this in our text, we see that because we're united with Christ and his suffering, we can live the beautiful life, the beautiful life of blessing, the beautiful life of suffering, and finally, the beautiful life in Christ, verses 18 through 22. Peter always grounds, as we've talked about in the past, everything that he's calling us to do in Christ, everything that he's calling us as God's people to do, anything that he's calling us to understand as our, as our calling as God's people, he grounds it in the work, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is always 
connected. He says, for Christ also suffered. Peter always is connecting our suffering with the suffering of Christ. No, it's not exactly the same, but it is similar. It's not just for solidarity, as helpful as that is, but it's to give us hope that Jesus didn't suffer in vain. He suffered for our sin. He suffered that we might have life in him. He suffered to bring the blessings of the Father to us. And even though Jesus suffered death in terms of his body, the Spirit raised him from the dead. And so similarly to those who are in Christ, even though we face suffering, even if that suffering might even lead to death. We ultimately share in Christ's resurrection, Peter is reminding us. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, verse 19 Man, Luther was right when he wrote, a wonderful text this is and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. So that I do not know for a certainty what Peter means. (laughs) I, like Luther, am going to plead the fifth on this one as well. What is Peter getting at? There is a lot of discussion around this, and I'm just going to quickly get through it, because it's really, as many commentators point out, it can derail us from the point of the text, but I feel like I need to at least address it. The majority of you among today's scholars that the text describes Christ's proclamation of victory and judgment over evil angels. The word spirit is rarely used to refer to human beings. It is often referred to the angels or demons. So the majority view is Christ's proclamation of victory and judgment over the evil angels. And these evil angels within the context could possibly be the evil angels that we read about in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Evil angels who had sexual relations with, with women and were imprisoned because of their sin. And the point of this passage is then not that Christ descended into hell, but that he has victory over the evil angelic powers, that he is proclaiming his victory, not just to people, but to the evil powers, the evil forces, the evil angelic powers. And so the best solution in my understanding is that this verse proclaims Christ's victory over demonic spirits after his death and resurrection. And he proclaims this victory over them as the crucified and risen Lord. And they are subject to him as we see in verse 22. We see then that Peter, after explaining that Christ has proclaimed his victory over these spirits... He then talks about God's patience in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which 
a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And he says that baptism corresponds to this. Now saves you not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When baptism, Ed Clowney uh, points this out, when baptism is compared to the waters of the flood or the waters of the Red Sea, the threatening symbolism of water is brought into view. Right? Israel was brought through the waters of the sea and of the Jordan, and Noah was brought through the waters of the flood, and Christians are brought through the waters of death, the flood of destruction, in order that they might be established upon the rock, secure in the resurrection life of Jesus. Right? Baptism does symbolize cleansing, but baptism is much more than that, and Peter's pointing that out. It means union with Christ in his death and resurrections, in resurrection. That Christians have been set apart in Christ in his death and resurrection. That they have been participants in his victory over death and all the powers of darkness. That we not need to fear our enemies. And so Peter is reminding us of this reality of the way in which God, through the waters of the flood, in a sense, protected Noah. And through the waters of baptism, we as well are protected. That we have a good conscience, that we are cleansed by the waters of baptism through the work of Jesus Christ. Right? Peter is clear that it's neither water nor baptism that can save. The act itself cannot save. Right? What saves us is that we have a good conscience because of what Christ has done on our behalf. What saves is the proper awareness of God that leads someone to seek and to find hope and peace with him. This occurs through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The risen and reigning Christ saves and is the basis of our appeal to God. And our baptism represents all of this. Peter reminds us that it is the beautiful life in Christ. It is in Christ that we have the ability, even the hope of living this beautiful life. We are sojourners and exiles, as Peter has reminded us. And even if we are a community plagued by opponents who mistreat us, Peter says, do not be dismayed. Do not be discouraged. Instead, remember that God extends his patience to all as in the day of judgment that he waited in the days of Noah. He waits now. allowing us as his priests, as his people, to proclaim the good news even in the midst of our suffering, that they might come to know and be saved as we are. Peter's appeal to Noah also reminds us to persevere in the midst of that. The God is patient, long-suffering, 
and desires for those to come to faith in him. And if he preserved Noah in the midst of opposition, in the midst of the whole world seemingly being against Noah, if he preserved Noah in such a time as that, will he not also preserve and save you in such a time as this? Even if you are experiencing suffering for his sake, because we are united with Christ in his suffering, we can live the beautiful life, the beautiful life of blessing, the beautiful life of suffering, and the beautiful life in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have called us in Christ to live this honorable or beautiful life as Peter describes it. And Lord, oftentimes that will bring peace. But Lord, when it brings suffering, we thank you for your word today that reminds us that your love, your blessing, your mercy, your grace is something that is not outside of our suffering. Lord, that you are with us in the suffering and that your Christ your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, suffered for us. Lord, we pray that by your Spirit, you would encourage us, you would strengthen us, and you would help us to live the beautiful life, whether it brings peace, whether it brings suffering. We know, Lord, that your blessing is upon us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.